Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. I'm April Vokey, and you are listening to Anchored. My chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the outdoors today. Join me as I sit down with my guests to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both indoors and out. Mickey Finn, born Michael Shanahan, didn't find guiding. Guiding found him. Mickey spends his days guiding in Australia's snowy mountains. In this episode of Anchored, we discuss brown trout, using UV in flies, anxiety, building a raft, and more. This episode of Anchored is brought to you by Great Fishing Adventures of Australia. The diversity of Australia's fishing experiences is as vast as the country itself. Great Fishing Adventures of Australia is the catch of Australia's best fishing operators that have come together to collectively raise the profile of Australia as a world-class fishing destination. No matter what the season, Australia offers enthusiasts the opportunity to indulge in their passion and experience some of the world's very best fishing amongst some of the most naturally spectacular environments the world has to offer. Discover your next fishing adventure by visiting australia.com forward slash fishing. Again, that's www.australia.com forward slash fishing. which is the Australian Capital Territory. It's kind of like the Washington, D.C. of Australia. It's a little state within a state um, for anyone who's never been here. Everyone makes fun of it um, because it's small. It's full of public servants um, and government officials and journalists, which is what my family was. So we moved there 
My dad was and still is a journo, um, which is short for journalist in Australia. <laughs> I'll just clarify all of those as I go. Yeah. Um, and I grew up in Canberra. Um, so it's about halfway between the mountains and the sea. And we were very lucky growing up in that mum and dad, we had a cool little place down on the coast where we could go during summer holidays. And then when I was about oh, eight or nine, we got a little place up in the mountains and we built a, yeah, up the top near Adaminibi, which is where my dad's family's from. For people listening right now, this is super awkward because I'm leaning in close to Mickey because I'm <laughs> recording on one microphone. And, he's and like, I'm Why leaning away so, so we don't kill it. Exactly. <laughs> we we're doing this in person. Yeah. I haven't done an in-person podcast in like, well, since COVID hit. I know. But I did, I, I'm here on a fishing trip in the mountains, which is why I just pointed at the mountains when you said mountains. But we're using this as an opportunity to meet up and do this podcast on a single microphone. So if the audio sounds sus, that's why. It's because we're, we've gone we've gone old school. But exactly. Yeah. So anyway, so these mountains here. Yeah. So this is the foothills of the Snowy Mountains. We're on the other side from where I grew up. Canberra's on the other side. And Adaminibi which is where our um, property was growing up, is right smack dab in the middle, right up high. Um, And I basically grew up in Canberra, but, I mean, we were super lucky. We got to go up to the mountains, down to the coast, and so jumping between the two, just going fishing, doing whatever we wanted, building houses, helping mum and dad out, and got a lot of brothers and sisters, so we were a useful uh, army, basically, so <laughs> we could go and do all the work on various places, And because uh, we built the place up at Adaminibi, mm-hmm. and uh, we did a lot of work on Congo, too, as well, down the coast, and a few other things, and yeah, just went, basically was at school the whole time in Canberra, went to u- university in Canberra, and uh, yeah, now I'm down here in Tumut, on the other side of the mountains, which is cool, but... Yeah, just kicking around between the mountains and the sea. <laughs> yeah, and it's beautiful. Sorry, it feels so weird leaning in. I've actually never had to do this before. I know. It looks hilarious. <laughs> so for anyone who can't see this, April is currently hugging the microphone to attempt to get her voice across. I'm going to take a picture when this is yeah, done and I will post exactly. it. Exactly. Um, okay, so Mickey Finn is what we're calling you. Yeah. But can you tell us the story behind your name? Because people who see this episode, they're going to say, Mickey Finn, this man must be 100. Who's the original Mickey Finn? Tell us your real name and the story behind your name. So, so, my name is not Mickey Finn. My mum will get very upset if she sees Mickey Finn. My name is Michael Shanahan. You know I'm going to post it as Mickey Finn. Oh, you have to. Yeah, you got to. <laughs> well, that's my problem is, is I've got this stage name now. It's like walking around. It's, it's, it's hilarious and conceited at the same time. Um, but basically, I was doing, um, so it all started because uh, I was at university doing English and history, just as an undergrad degree, and, you know, fishing and doing everything else in between. And then I also did a Master's of Teaching, which is used to be called a Diploma of Education. It's just, it's really, it's a short course. It's like a year or two. And you go in and then after that, you can teach because I wanted to be a teacher. Um, and obviously other stuff got in the way. But during that course, I had all my, I'd already was guiding. I was already fishing heaps and everything else. And I had a little business called Mickey Finn's Fly Guiding, which I was very proud of. Um, and still am classic, classic business name. Um, but basically they said that we had to change all of our Instagram things while we were teaching. So kids wouldn't find us. So I changed mine from Michael Shanahan, which is what it was to Mickey Finn and then it's basically stuck. So ever since I teamed up with my now business partner, Josh, um, 
and he basically is the Instagram king of the world. Um, just sees everything through an Instagram Josh focused Hutchins. lens. Let's, well, Josh yeah. Hutchins from Aussie Fly Fisher because he's been on the show too. Exactly, exactly. Um, and so he thought my name, he even, like my first few invoices and stuff that I'd sent through, he had Finn on the thing. And I was like, dude, we need to change this to Shanahan. He was like, is your last name Shanahan? And I was like, yeah. And it's a, it's a, it's a really important name too as well because, I mean, if you drive up, to the mountains on the back road to Canberra that you go over Shanahan's Mountain and you go over, and my family on that side are all Shanahan's and Delaney's. You go over Delaney's Creek up on the Yukonbean, um, even Denison Campground, like Denison, like my dad's name is Dennis. Like this, uh, if you go up to the Adam to be Cemetery, in fact, there's a Michael Liam Shanahan, which is my exact name. Um, and he was my great grand uncle and he was only two years old when he died back in, you know, early early 19, late 1800 sort of How thing. How Oh, he just would have been an infant in the Snowy Mountains, which, you know, wouldn't be a fantastic place to be. You know, a lot of big Irish families and I guess, you know, if they lost a couple of kids up there, it wasn't wasn't too out of the blue. Because oh. it, it is, to give people a geographical idea, it's very remote for Australia, probably, you know, 100, 150 years ago and there were gold rushes up there and everything else, but mainly it was sheep stations um, very famous for sheep, which I hate um, because my grandfather was a shearer. Um, and so he instilled an early hatred of sheep into uh, our family. And so dad, mum and dad, super supportive, best parents ever. But at the same time, dad, as whenever we were driving past sheep, would just complain. It's like, you know, how much they stink and how much he hates them. And as a fly fishing guide, I can relate because the one thing you always find uh, up on a pristine river is some sheep that's gotten lost and he's gotten caught in a fence and you've got to go and sort it out. And it's just terrible. I, I have no time for sheep unless I'm wearing their fibers or eating them at all times. So okay. besides that, they're fine. But anyway, that's the, that's the storied history of the uh, Shanahan family name, which my mum will like. And uh, yeah, and an important, you know, yeah, my family's all journalists and stuff and you know I love writing too as well so I've been trying to write more under Shanahan so if you see that it's uh, me trying to be less cool and just use my actual name and not some silly stage name okay. but it's good it's good fun too because the Mickey Finn's a great fly and it's a, yeah, it's it's a great cool, name exactly it's it great works name. out well so fly fishing how did you get into it exactly and, and, I, and I'm really curious about how you got into it professionally so Getting into it in the first place, when we were growing up, we always fished down the coast mainly. So we'd go out and surf cast for, um, we call them salmon, but they're a giant herring um, and brim, sea brim, um, which everyone will know and that sort of thing. But I didn't see someone fly fishing until we uh, got our property up in the mountains and we started working on it up there. And we're right on a very famous fly fishing river here in Australia called the Murrumbidgee. Mm. Um, and basically... One day we were driving along and I saw these guys fly fishing and I just thought it was the coolest thing I'd ever seen. And of course I walked straight up to them with my spin rod, which I had at the time with my little selter or my little worm or whatever on it and walked straight through a rising fish to come over and ask them how they were doing, you know. And they were actually quite nice, to be honest. They were like, oh, well, if you want to do it, then you should probably do this, this and this. You know, a little kid walks up to you and you'd be like, oh, well, you know, you can't blame a little kid. Um, and I just got obsessed with it from when I was a kid. So I built myself a little fly rod and I'd run around without any great success all across the Murrumbidgee and the Snowies. And I did that all through school, you know, slowly kind of building myself up. I went, went to the library actually to get all the books because I – I'm I'm of a vintage where we were just before YouTube and everything else. Plus, we didn't have good internet at my house, and I didn't know how to do anything with 
computers in general. So I, and I love books. And so I went to the library, got all of the fly fishing books and the guy at the la- library gave them to me because no one at the school had rented a library book about fly fishing since the 70s. Oh, wow. And so he just said, take them home. And so I learned from three or four books, and and a nice family friend taught me down how to cast one afternoon. And I just kind of tooled around. And, you know, Canberra, where I grew up, there's a lot of fly fishermen there, and there's a lot of you bump into people, you pick stuff up. And I was kicking along, and as we'd finished the house, um, mum and dad would rent it out to family friends. And then dad would just say, oh, well, Michael... We'll take you fishing or whatever, or I'd be up there and someone else would come up there and I'd take them out. And at first it just started off as, you know, me running around madly being like, yeah, I've seen a fish here once. Come and come and give it a crack and, you know, helping out. Um, and then about when I got my license, sort of 17, 18, I started getting a bit more serious about it. And then it was friends of friends and family friends and then people I didn't know. And then it got to the point where someone would be like, hey, do you want a case of beer? And I'll to take me out fishing. I'd be like, oh, yes, please. That's the best deal of all time. <laughs> um, and I was just, you know, tooling around in my mum's old Toyota Camry um, looking for spots to go fishing. But it started to get it started to just slowly evolve into more and more of a thing. And actually one of my um, friends, Nick O'Leary, who I worked at a winery as well. Um, So I do a winery season and then work at uni and then basically fish all in between and do a little bit of guiding here and there. He was really instrumental because he's a very good businessman. He said, right, you need to get a business number and you need to get this, you need to get insurance, you need to do that. I'm going to help you set it all up as your own little business. And so from when I was about 20, I had my own little fly fishing guiding business that I used to run out of the lodge. Um, And then I got my first real big break when I was about just before I turned 21. Um, I guided a fantastic guy, a very close friend of mine, Tom, um, and who's from New York and then lives in Montana now. And so that's how I got over to Montana and met him and met his guide. And then it just all kind of kept snowballing and snowballing and then ended up in Montana in our off season and then coming back to do our on season here and then working in the winery and teaching Phil, by the wayside, in the end. <laughs> um, I just got too busy guiding, basically. Um, yeah, and it just kept building and building really nicely. Um, those guys in Montana, like my buddy Miles taught me how to row a drift boat and everything else. And it was really cool working with my mate Justin and, and Joe and John and all the guys at Big Sky Anglers over there taught me up. And it was really cool to see how professional guide teams work and how outfitter systems work. So I got exposed to that very early on, which was radical. And those guys were really supportive and they even brought out clients from Montana to come fish in the snowies, which I thought was huge news. And, you know, you're going pretty hard when you've got, you've got you want to impress them when oh, you've got no, those no. guys coming out, you know. Um, not that I don't love all my Australian clients and you want to impress them too. And um, and at that time, I was mainly all just, you know, wandering about and had a little four-wheel drive and we'd get about and do a lot of bank angling. But eventually I wanted to start drift boating too. Um, and this was about the time when I started working with Josh, Josh Hutchins. And so, because he used to run guided trips up to the Snowies too, because he had his own guiding business, Aussie Fly Fisher. And I had my little Mickey Finns incorporated uh, vice president, junior vice president uh, standing before you. What did you think when he was coming up here? Now that everyone's cool and friends and buddies, were you a little nervous that you, there was going to be competition? I wasn't really nervous. I, I tried to rip on him a lot on the Yukon River. I tried the first time I met him, I was making fun of him for fishing a Euro Nymph rod because I was like, oh, nice rod, man. I'll see you. Because he'd just written some story saying, you know, it was the greatest Yukon Bean rod of all time. And I was like, this guy. And then I saw him and, you know, he's, he's, a, he's an awesome dude. 
dude. But you know, I was hurling abuse at him across the river in, in the in the, in the nicest Australian way possible. You got to understand if you like someone in Australia, you be mean to them. Yeah, essentially, take, take the piss. Like, yeah, if, exactly. If you're nice to me. Yeah. I'm wondering if you are so polite. Exactly. I just figure you're not comfortable with me, and we yeah. probably aren't going to talk. Yeah, about which it. I feel is a very. It's not an Australian trait. It's a very human trait. If you're not, very Canadian too. I'd yeah. say. But no, I wouldn't. I, I'd say it's pretty Aussie Canadian. Yeah, a bit more laid back. I, I guess it could be misconstrued. I guess in kind of the lower 48, as sometimes if you were like, hey, you know, you're. Leap head, what's going on? Like someone would be like, "Oh, do you what's want wrong with what, that guy? exactly? What's wrong with that guy?" <laughs> Whereas here, it's like, "Oh yeah, he's a, he's an old like oh, that's a nice dude." You know yeah. what I mean? So I definitely gave Josh a little bit of crap, but we barely ever saw each other because um, I mean, between so my season would be early season guiding on the hatch driven stuff around the Murrumbidgee, and then I do three months of vintage at Nico's Winery, and we, it was awesome too because Nick was mad keen I mean still is mad keen fly fishing and go fishing all the time and so I managed to time it where I do the early season and then vintage which during the droughts and everything else that was my least busy time of year anyway for guiding so it worked out fantastically and I got to learn how to make wine and drive a forklift and get in everyone's way and everyone was very nice to me um and then by the time that finished our big four lake runs start um and so then I get back out guiding and we get back into it and the season will kind of start again and so I'd bump into Josh a little bit during those four runs um but we didn't have too much connection really in person like maybe down the pub once or twice and then he messaged me after I'd been guiding for a little while and he just said, I think I was actually getting on a plane to go to Turangi um, to go on a spay trip with my mates. And he sent me a message just asking if I wanted to call. I said, yeah, I definitely will. But give me three days. I'm going to the Tongariro and I'll be back and we'll have a chat. New Zealand. Yeah. Sorry. That's, well, one of the big advantages of being in Australia, I mean, not for the last couple of years, but usually is that if you've got three days off, you can just nip over to New Zealand and go for a fish. Like, it's pretty rad. Um, and that was where I started um, my serious overseas fishing. As soon as I was 18, I saved up and I went straight to Tuarangi. And I've been there every year since, except the last two, obviously, with COVID. And um, I'm very keen to get back and see all my mates, but um, especially Andrew Burden, the king of the, the mayor of Tuarangi. He'll, um, <laughs> he'll, he'll drink you under the table and spay further than anyone has ever seen. Um, he's, he's a weapon. But yeah, Josh basically said, you know, do you want to start doing some work together? And he had a couple of options, you know, and we sort of just went with, look, he'll take care of all the bookings. I'll come under the AFF brand. And then all I had to do was turn up and guide. So it was like, yeah, of course. And, you know, Josh at the time, he's Josh. He's got, you know, he's the world's greatest promoter of all time. And you meet him in person and he's literally as huge as his promotional skills. Um, so fantastic dude and great, great mate and business partner. And we get along fantastically. And then we've just been kind of building it from there. So that would have been... I guess five or so years ago, maybe six, that we started working together. And since then, we've kind of transitioned from the high country, um, which is mainly walkway days, over to the uh, tail outside of the mountains, so the valley side of the mountains. And with what I'd learned in Montana from all the guys over there at Big Sky, um, we basically started building the drift boat business up, and that's been really fantastic. And now that We've kind of gone through a big season of drought and fires, and now it's, everything's really wet again up the top. The high country is shaping up fantastic. I mean, the high country is always good for trout here. Um, and we're kind of pushing back up into the mountains as well now. And I mean, how many guides have we got these days? Five or six? And I kick around and basically make sure everyone's got all the gear they need and make sure the clients all know where to go. And 
I go guiding every day and hang out with the boys in the evening and have a beer. And that's pretty much it at the moment. So yeah. it's all turned out reasonably well. You can sum it up pretty quickly. It hasn't been, <laughs> I'm only 30. It's not exactly, <laughs> exactly. So it I know you're so young. Yeah. Before we start diving into some more personal stuff, tell me about, or can you describe the fishery to people and the landscape and someone who can't envision what Australia trout fishing looks like, can you try to put a picture to it for them? So international, like if I were to compare it internationally um you're looking kind of at if you would go up into the foothills of the rockies or if you were to go up into the catskills or something similar in that in that kind of u.s sort of thing um or like some of the spanish streams and that sort of thing where they're coming off quite dry plains and that but they're high altitudes for cold water we don't have crazy high altitude here like you know we're sitting ring right here we're only at 200 meters above sea level we're not high at all. It's yeah. because we've got a big tailwater here that the trout fishing is spectacular. And just at that mountain over there, um, you boost straight up to 1,000 metres. And then from there, you go up to 1,400 metres. And then from there, you go up to 1,600 metres. So we have consistent snowfalls up in these. They're not, we call them the snowy mountains. Compared to other mountains around the world, they're much more hills, big, big hills. And some of them are solid mountains, you know. Um, no, actually, they're mountains. I won't, I won't draw them down that much. I feel like um, they're mountains. Yeah, they're beautiful I I mountains. Feel like they're yeah. mountains. Um, they just don't do that thing that the Rockies do where they go straight up. So you kind of gradually climb up them. It gets colder and colder and colder. We get a really big snowfall. So our catchment, um, we've got a few different catchments up here, but they encompass an area bigger than Yosemite. Um, so Kosciuszko National Park here, where we get all the snowfall, all the rainfall. It drains into kind of three or four major systems, and there's tons of creeks in between that. You've got high country fishing with three weights and little dry flies, and you can muck around in there. You've got big alpine lakes with big rivers running into them and some massive fish in those. We had a six-and-a-half-pounder on the boat the other day. I had one of the lakes, and one of the boys got another six-pounder yesterday. They're really on fire. I mean, I know this won't be relevant by the time it comes out, but get to Lake Hugh it's fantastic um and then you've got kind of spring creeks on the other side too through very um, nutrient rich valleys um and then you've got pine forests around here a lot too because um there's a big pine industry around here as well as um everything else but most of it is actually gum so you could be walking through gum trees and have wallabies and kangaroos and echidnas and wombats and all the fun things but you're in the snow so it's a very surreal experience for a lot of people to be in the Australian bush, but you're walking along in two or three feet of snow in winter. Um, and a lot of times our big, busy end of season, what, what you guys would call the fall run, I guess, for those big lake trout, um, they're big brownies, um, is a lot of that's in April, May. And in May, you can be up there in a blizzard. I mean, you, I've, had, I've been up in January, which is our peak summer. Um, and I've been stuck out in the jungle wilderness in a two-day blizzard, like just comes in out of nowhere. And, in January? Yeah. You'll get them. We're high enough up where you can get that weather, and we're high enough up where it's crystal clear and cold, and the night times are just unbelievable. you got the Milky Way through the sky, Southern Cross. I mean, you know what it's like out here, and it's just – it's a massive wilderness area, and – it's kind of my playground, so I'm quite excited. <laughs> I think it's highly, highly underrated. Yeah. And worldwide. Yeah. And all, but in Australia as well. Yeah, even me. I was just down talking. I'm calling them hills. They're the snowy mountains. You got to, they're, they're real mountains. I walk around just absolutely dumbfounded. Yeah, it's I mean, fantastic. You sent us to a little river yesterday, mm. and, and I got the feeling like it was just a I don't know, like a kind of a bonus river. Yeah, that's just one of, that's just like a little fun one that's there. And to me, that was, a, that, 
I mean, I, I, I can't say the fish were world class because we didn't catch very many fish. I think mm. we, we lost more fish than we brought in. But that's, I mean, I would happily pay for a guide a day on that little stretch of river. Yeah, and that's, that's we've got tons of those little creeks and everything else. And then right here, uh, two blocks from the house, um, which is the really beautiful thing about living here in Tumut on the Snowy Valley side of the mountains, is that we have the big tail out. Um, so you've got the big tail water of the Tumut River, and that's got some absolute world-class fishing in it. So, I mean, you know, this season alone, I mean, we've had, you get really good numbers of fish. You can kind of have those really heavy nymphing days. So it can sustain that constant guiding pressure and just wreck pressure too as well. It's a big river by Australian standards. Um, you know, averages out about two or 3,000 megalitres a day, which, what's that in Cumex? I don't know, it's like, it's like a smaller... Um, almost like the Gallatin River or something else like that, if you've ever fished across. I always I always compare everything to Montana because it's easy for me. The guys always make fun of me because they know I'm about to tell a long, boring story if they hear, well, in Montana, and then I continue to, uh, yeah. But I do love Montana. But, um, yeah, it's a big quality tail section of a river, and it's just unbelievable. So drifting that, and during the summer, you get cicadas, you get hoppers, and it's big browns on the edges, and or streamers too, and I just love it. Like... It's it's exactly what I've been looking for as as far as like yes this is the place I will be and I mean you know you come around to my house this evening which is awesome that we can and you can literally sit out here on the deck and look out into the Tumut Valley towards Blaring Cliffs and I can catch giant Murray cod in Blaring up the road too as well um, but some of the biggest in Australia are in there too. Now for people listening, the Murray cod and anyone who's listened to the show for a long time knows that I love Murray cod and mm. that they're obviously native to Australia. Now yep. the trout are not so what's the story there so the trout are not native to australia so the what we have up in the snowy mountains is in the after the world war ii they came in and built a big hydro scheme basically because hydro is the future and everything else as it is you know as that happened a lot after world war ii um and the hydro scheme at the time was the largest engineering project in the world and it's a massive series of dams with connecting pipes so they can shift water around wherever they want but what they created was a bunch of gigantic dams that hold a lot of fantastic trout now trout had already been in there for a very long time we've had trout i believe in the mainland for 150 odd years now um i'm pretty sure 1864 was tasmania right yeah tasmania and then it wouldn't have been long after yeah i think it was like 10 years after or something for the mainland um but and so our brown trout come from English chalk streams, the Tess, the Itch and the Piddle, and one more, which is escaping me. Our rainbow trout come from New Zealand, and they came from Californian steelhead stock. So they were introduced well before all of the dams, and the river fishing up through there was fantastic in up in the mainlands. Then they set up all these dams and then it went insane because then you have these big dams. We've got a lot of crayfish here, a lot of midge, a lot of caddis, a lot of different things to start off different food chains. So we have heaps of water and then you also end up with these tail out too as well. So you get these big tail waters like the Tumut, um, which are coming out of the bottom of dams. Now, of course, that's all reasonably artificial um, and the trout thrive in it because it's the perfect temperature for them. But at the same time, they've really been working across the last 20 years to reintroduce native species into the best places for them. So, for instance, the Snowy Mountains isn't the best place for Murray cod because... 
they weren't really up that high in the first place because it's quite cold. There would have been a lot of obstacles to migration and that sort of thing. Um, but further down, when you start to get into this side, there are tons of streams like the Murrumbidgee down here, which is absolutely chockers with cod. And a lot of streams that might have been marginal, which would have been stocked with trout a few years ago, which they stopped stocking with trout, added some cod, and then the cod take care of themselves. Okay. So it's a really great bang for your buck when it comes to a fishery. And I, I personally, I love a mixed fishery. It's, it's my favorite. And you could come here, you know, fish for trout in the morning, have a snooze in the afternoon and go, you know, night fishing for cod with big poppers and you can catch the, the largest freshwater species in Australia. Um, so it's, it's, it's a real smorgasbord as far as species go. Um, and it's not just Murray cod here too. We also have trout cod and they're not a hybrid between a Murray cod and a trout. They're like the smallmouth bass of Murray cod. So a different species that can um, interbreed a bit. Um, but if they do, they're sterile. So you've got two distinct native species. I mean, three, if you count Macquarie perch, they're endangered, but they're coming back too. So there's just a lot of really cool stuff happening on that native front. Um, and we do a lot of native guarding too as well. And this season should be really good for it. Last, se- uh, last couple of seasons with the fires were a bit tough, um, but now we've had all the water. The great thing about the natives is they're super resilient. They'll hang tough during fire seasons. And then when it's wet, they bulk up, they breed, they're good to go. So they're a really great, as far as, I mean, as far as the ecology goes, they're fantastic. And then as far as purely guiding goes, they're a great drought proof option that we're definitely looking forward to the future. But again, I love trout. I'm a trout guide who, who gets to go and hunt big predators, you know, in his free time and on, and on some awesome guiding days, which I love. Um, but the trout up here are self-sustaining. They're breeding. They do stock some fingerlings into the lakes, um, but they mainly then get targeted by guys who are trolling and you know throwing lures or, or bait and that sort of thing. So it's good. It's a big recreational fishery. It's there for everyone. And we've got everything from, yeah, tiny streams to um, Lake Yukon which I think is eight times the size of Sydney Harbour when it's full or something like that. Oh, my gosh. I think. I always tell people that fact. I should probably check it. <laughs> look it up. Oh. Um, what about yesterday I found like a three-inch long blue lobster claw. And Charles yep. said that's a yabby. So a yabby is one of the main big protein sources for our trout. It's actually one of the things that, um, like a lot of the Argentine trout, they eat a lot of those big crayfish. So we've got masses of these crayfish that we call yabbies. Okay. And then we also have a different species down here called the Murray cray, which is almost a freshwater lobster. It's huge when they get big and they've got big white claws. Um, they're delicious, highly endangered, highly protected, except for certain areas where you can gather them. But the Murray cod and the trout all eat those. And it actually means that, because, um, I mean, from time to time, like like you can mean at the moment, has probably a million rainbows in it going through eating yabbies. And if you are going to take a little sustainable fish to eat a rainbow from one of the lakes, perfect. Um, so, I mean, I live in the snowy, so I, I bonk a rainbow on the lake every now and again. Yeah. Um, but we're all catch and release through the rivers and everything else. And I tend to put all the browns back too as well, because they're really self-sustaining and um, really interesting fish too as well. I love the rainbows too. I love big rainbows. They're my favorite, but I just love all fish. I just love them. They're so cool. They're just the best. <laughs> why are big browns in, or why are browns interesting in your opinion? Well, the browns here are very interesting. I've actually got to look into it a little more, but there's a book written called The Last wild trout so our brown trout here because they got taken over um very early on in before a lot of those english chalk streams now the chalk streams have always been highly managed highly everything else but uh, we got a lot of strains of them they did very well down in tassie and very well up in the mainland and then since then they don't really reintroduce browns here 
Um, oh. The Browns need to take care of themselves. Um, there's a couple of reasons these days. It's more some of it's ecological in that they're very efficient predators, and we've got a lot of frogs and everything else to native, and so they don't like to put Browns in places that they weren't. So it's hard to stop Browns anywhere they're not already. Um, and then also our hatcheries just don't run browns because they're a lot harder. Um, and we don't have those kind of hatchery fish where it's, you know, you put and take hatchery sort of thing. They, they stock up fingerlings because a lot of our big lakes only have very small tributaries, which is good because it keeps us the numbers down, the size up. But then they chuck a bunch of fingerlings into some of those very large lakes, which just helps with the wreck guys pretty much. And, um, and they also do really good genetics and everything else. So you're not getting the same sort of zombie fish coming back again and again or anything like that. Um, but the browns, yeah, if you catch a brown up here, it's, it's been here for a hundred whatever years. Um, and it comes from old English brown stock and their genetics are actually super interesting. They've adapted really well to Australians. They can actually take very warm water. And a few other things. And they're just super pretty. I mean, they're... They are pretty. Yeah, we do get a fair few cookie-cutter rainbows. Like, you know, it's hard to tell one from the other a lot. But the browns, everyone here is just completely different. You know, you can catch one that looks like a silver sea runner, and then the next one, big gnarly kind of caramel black spots, and then the next one's just fluoro orange. And Mm -hmm. it's... They're a real kind of genetic diversity to them, which is very interesting, which I love to see. Would they eat a big blue fly then? Because that blue yabby... Oh yeah. Do they, are they blue in the water? Yeah, they're kind of blacky blue. Um, I'm not so much about uh, imitative color options when it comes to flies. When I'm looking at flies, I'm always looking at um, trigger points instead. So I'm thinking, like UV, for instance, on a tailwater is super important to me. I mean, especially for nymphing and that sort of thing, which is obviously where we're picking up a bulk of our fish with clients. Um, but. I'm always looking at sort of UV hotspots and then if I'm looking at maybe a bigger streamer, I'm thinking profile and I'm, I think more in very much along, I'm of the, the Gallup school of, right, switch out from white to black to chartreuse to yellow than to olive and whatever, although usually you can just put on olive and roll with it. Um, but, or white, just because I like to see them get eaten. But what the most excited thing I was to go up to Montana was to go and go into the slide in and meet Kelly and get some dungeons and then go and fish them. And I'm going in, and I'm like, oh, hey guys, how's it going? Yep. Oh, hi Kelly. And you know, I'm sure it just gets this with every 21 year old kid who decides to go to America. It's like, gotta go meet Kelly. Yeah, dude, it's intense, man. And (laughs) the guy's like, oh, Carol will tie you up some bugs. I'm like, I'm not going to take Kelly Gallup's time to make him tie me dungeons. I'm going to ask politely for one or two and a photo. I've got this photo. I've got my Echo hat on and I'm shaking Kelly's hand. (laughs) I'm out there super excited. But um, yeah, and yeah, I just, when it comes to those kind of color things, I'm more about switching through colors purely and then sizes and that sort of thing but i'm not much like i don't own a single blue fly and they are very blue in the water but i think kind of when you're looking at it from a sort of perspective of profile and what throws the best shade and that sort of thing blue is not the most important like i probably go black before i go blue um and even in my dries and in my like i fish pink heaps Mm -hmm. and you know you're hard pressed to find pink anywhere on any of these rivers but it slays so um in hot spots and that sort of thing so what's your theory on fly color versus watercolor because that's a common question that i'm asked so i'm i'm of two minds when it comes to watercolor specifically and i've actually been thinking about this a lot recently because uh recently we've had a lot of water and we we've got the dam controlled section of the river is always pretty clear like i mean it's either eight foot visibility or six foot visibility so it's pretty good so i mean you can 
run pretty natural, although I tend to run. Um, I'm not giving away any massive secrets here, everyone who uh, knows, but I tend to run quite little bright hot spots of pink UV and that sort of thing, just to get the heat. You said hot spots. What do you mean by hot spots? Like a bead or a head? Uh, it's usually, for me, it's usually a tail. Um, just a little bit of, just a little bit of like glow yarn or whatever, or, you know, anything. I use a lot of this uh, winging material that's really good UV, and I just use it for tails on these nymphs. Um, or you can have a hot bead, something like that. It's it's real, like, it's down and dirty. I'm going to get numbers of rainbows today for people. That's that's what it's about. It's like, right, I'm going to run some jig nymphs, and we are going to get some rainbows. And um, and if I really want to slay, then I stick a Euronymph rod out the back, and then we just go through and vacuum clean the river. But I often don't feel that bad towards the fish that day to go and do that to them. But, um, no, we and that's – it's – small profile little and it's tons of caddis in here too as well so they're basically a little case caddis with a little bit of uv sticking out and it's just come and eat me now please um and i don't really care what it is if it's clear bright day i'm running a little bit of bright uv now if it's a darker day but we've got clear water then i'll just run the exact same flight because i don't care <laughs> and it still absolutely <laughs> cleans up okay. but if i'm looking at big browns on the edges of feeding a bit more meticulously on duns and stuff like that then i turn the uv way back then i'm really on like just a plain pheasant tail um or a shaving brush something real drab possum fur emerger like drab day and i'm hunting those big browns you know the rainbows down there it doesn't matter but when you get to dirty water then there's definitely one or two ways you can go you either just go dark I was talking to Charles today about this, salmon and everything else. So, with I mean, the traditional is you go dark and you get them, which I've done always in the past. And that really works well for nymphs and dead drifting stuff to get the profile, you know, because you want to absorb as much light as possible because they're hunting profiles in that water. But that being said, I'll throw a bright pink squirming worm and that'll get eaten. But that's also quite big, so it's probably just throwing a bit more profile. And I try not to go down those rabbit holes too much when I'm nymphing. But if it comes to streamers in dirty water, which I'm very serious about... I like fishing white because I can see it. Even though Prudence says I should be fishing darker and deeper, I fish white and really shallow, and I've gotten some massive eats off some huge fish. And so I stick to that, or I cycle through into an olive, or I cycle through into a black, until I get an eat, or a follow, or a grab. Because there's so many... If you try and come up with too many formulas, you're like, right, well, it's a dark day and dark water or light day, and you try and equal all that stuff out, you might miss something that happens to be happening on that day. You can't control the variables, but it's really easy to switch through options till something works. Um, and if all that fails, just throw white because it's fun and you can see it, basically. <laughs> like, I mean, if I'm, like, when we were streaming fishing the other day, it's like, we're throwing white because we can see it. And I oh, want to see... way more fun. Oh, man, I want to see a big brown crawl over it. Are we a higher chance on olive on that dull day with clear water? Yes, 100%. But... Yeah, they will still eat white, and it's sick because you see it from 40 kilometers away, and you turn a brown trout into a barramundi. He comes and kills it. I can't believe how aggressive they are. They're nutters. Yeah. They're predators. Coming up, Mickey and I get personal. Again, thank you to Great Fishing Adventures of Australia for making this episode possible. If you're planning a visit to Australia, I cannot emphasize enough that you must check out australia.com forward slash fishing. When I followed my husband down here, I couldn't believe the opportunity I was witnessing. Huge fish, experienced guides, countless species. Australia is home to some of the most diverse quality fisheries on our planet. Great Fishing Adventures of Australia brings together some of Australia's best fishing operators to collectively raise the profile of Australia as a world-class fishing destination. Learn more by visiting australia.com forward slash fishing. This next bit is harder for me to transition into because I don't really know how to, because I don't 
I don't feel like I don't know you that well, but exactly, I will say that I like interviewing people that I don't know quite as well. Let me explain. So Adrian Camo is my best friend and she wanted to talk to me about something very personal. She suffers from serious depression mm. and we sat down to do a podcast and it was so hard because I know just, I just know too much. Yeah. And so I, you know, as someone, someone you love like that, you just don't want to overstep your boundaries. Yeah. Um, so I feel like I'm in the perfect situation right now and that I'm comfortable with you. And I mean, I'm in your home and we're friends and we fish together but I don't know everything. In fact, I don't really know much about you. And I'm going to open this up and it's going to be a little bit uncomfortable. No, that's, and to be honest, I mean, I think the best way to open it up is to explain that we recorded an entire podcast. We did. And I was having a pretty solid panic attack. I didn't know <laughs> during you were having a panic thing. attack. I thought you came yeah, across, well, I thought you came across great. The thing is, April, I'm very good at hiding it. Uh, yes, exactly. <laughs> Which is one of the problems with, uh, anxiety and that sort of thing, which is, um, basically, yeah. What, what kind of gets to me a fair bit. Um, so obviously massively different from, uh, Adrian's case and depression, you know, but, um, I guess they're both different. Uh, I, 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 I don't, I guess I haven't started using words disease or anything yet. Cause I, I don't really, cause I'll, the other thing in my family, a lot of people have act, like hardcore diseases too. So they've got um, this stuff called Addison's disease and hyperparathyroidism, which is an autoimmune deficiency disorder. So they, they're quite sick. So I've got uh, three brothers and sisters who are, you know, they're fine. They kick along. They're doing like, they're killing it. They just got to take their pills. Otherwise they die. But it's, yeah, exactly. So in my family, we grew up and everyone was, if you were sick, you were sick. Like, man, you had to go to the hospital because you were dying. That's it. So it's like, right, if you're a bit, you know, if you're a bit anxious, then well, you're right. Like, just well, get to it. Well, if anxious, man up, right? Yeah, That's well, what it well was. not even that. Not even that. Like my, and again, my my family's fantastic. My parents are very like. That's the thing. I'm extremely like. I'm the luckiest kid in the world. Basically, I feel that my family is a testament to that, and everyone around me is a testament to that. But it's one of those things where if it's not, if if you've got to prioritize stuff, and it can be tough when you have actual kids dying on you in hospital and it's like right and and even my family were very helpful and supportive and everything else but then I was like no I gotta I gotta control this to make it easier for everyone else um which I think is probably a common mistake where people think that they have to um basically take it upon themselves to shield them their symptoms and their kind of problems from other people because they think asking for help is not so much a weakness. Like I know it's not a weakness, but it's more, I don't want to burden other people with that thing. Or you feel you're going to push other people away with that. So if you keep it just level and like, I used to always have these things we just called Mikey meltdowns about once a year when I'm just completely freak out. And, um, it's not very PC, but I used to call it spazzing out and just like disappear into the bush or whatever. And, um, it'd be one of those things where I'd just come back and I'd be like, no, I'm fine. Now. It's all good. You know? And it'd be like, sweet, cool. We're done. But as I've been getting older, it's kind of like, and you're running your own business and you're doing this and you're doing that and you're, you know, trying to form proper adult relationships and do all kinds of things. It's like, whoa, man, this is very intense to deal with. And it got to the point probably last year or two was when it was getting really bad. But what is anxiety? Because I have a few guy friends who have it, mm. and, but I don't know what it is. And, and I find it interesting because I have found quite a few men that I know. Yeah do have some sort of 
I don't want to say issues. I, 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 I'm going to have to find... Oh, dude, I've, I've got no idea. Like, like, my my terminology around all this stuff is terrible because I'm just like, oh, yeah. Like, I call my pills my crazy pills. Cause okay. it's like, but for me, it's a good way to make fun of it. So I don't I don't feel like it's weird. You know I, think, I, mean? I think I bounce back because I don't know if they're suffering from depression or anxiety or yeah. if they've got some other... Um, what so if, there's so I'm, many diagnoses. Yeah, and I'm, I'm diagnosed with anxiety. So That's, what is it? So it's... I, and again, I don't have depression, so I I can't. It's hard for me to distinguish the difference. But tell, I would say tell me what you what you the have. difference I so with anxiety, you can be very high functioning and quite often like so. For instance, like we recorded that whole podcast, and you had no idea that you know I hadn't slept for the entire night, and I was could barely breathe leading up to it and the whole thing. But I can snap into it and I can play a role quite well when I have to. But I'm running at 8,000 miles a minute being like, right, don't say this, don't say that, don't say that, don't stuff up, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that. It's a constant, it's a constant kind of Ferris wheel that slowly goes faster and faster and faster and faster and faster until it falls off the tracks. And that's while you're speaking or after or both? While I'm awake. (laughs) (laughs) So I used to like, and it's one of those ones where you're also, instead of just thinking about what you're doing, you find it very hard to focus on one thing or anything else like that. And I'd also say, I mean, all this mental health stuff, it kind of all, they all tie into each other and everything else. And it's very hard to diagnose any of these things. And it's incredibly personal for anyone who's going through it to figure out how they work with it and how they go through it. Um, And I found that for me, pretty much, and just, you know, going through and looking at it as anxiety and looking at something to work on and beat, and then being like, right, I know when this is happening and now I know what to do because I've got coping mechanisms and everything else on top of that. But beforehand, and when it was really getting bad, it'd just get to the point where you'd be like, I'd feel maybe it's kind of, I guess is it, and again, using depression as a point of difference is difficult because I don't really feel like I have depression. I'd get depressed about stuff, but I feel depression is like, you know, I listen to your excellent, you know, Adrian's fantastic thing where it's just, it's like, you know, a weight that just descends upon you. And you get that from time to time with anxiety, but you're just like, okay, just keep rolling. Like, you know, and if you need to, it's almost like you're trying to overwork everything and micromanage everything and keep this complex web together because you constantly feel like everyone's staring at you and everyone's judging every little thing you do. And that as soon as you stuff up, bang, that's done. That's done. That's done. You never, you know what I mean? Um, So it's a weird... It's a, I'd almost just say it's like almost like a weird form of like hyper vanity kind of cross with a bunch of other things where instead of being, I guess vanity is wrong, what I mean is instead of being a reflective kind of thing or just thinking about, right, how can I improve myself? You're constantly thinking about others and how they see you and how you should be and everything else and tied in. And I think, again, welcome to the surprise mental health podcast during the fishing podcast, but that's the thing. The, the reason everyone goes to fishing and that sort of thing, because the one time I'm not anxious is when I'm working so hard on getting a proper reach cast across that brown trap, I can't think about anything else. And it shuts everything else out. Then I catch it, and then I'm like, oh, man, what if someone saw me do a shit job from the road or whatever? Sorry for swearing. But um, anyway, it's one of those ones where I think the whole fishing, hunting, the whole outdoors thing ends up being 
a crutch in some ways. And it's, it's good because it obviously lets people cope, but in a lot of ways it's also not good because it's fantastic once you've got everything sorted because then you can even appreciate it even more. But using it as an escape mechanism, as a pure coping tool, I feel is dangerous. For Like I've started to realise, and that's one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you about it because I've, I've I, and you know, I'm not a doctor or a lawyer, so I don't have client you know, relation confidentiality, but it's like, I mean, but I see 150 different people a year. So, you know, but I do see it across the board, not just around clients, but, you know, with, within a broader fishing community, the whole thing. I think there's a lot of people out there using fishing as a coping tool and using, and it turns out being a band aid, or even if they are using it as a like kind of open coping tool and be like, Oh, this is, this is what I do for my mental health and stuff like that. It's like, that's cool, man. But also go talk to your doctor. Did you have anxiety as a kid? Yeah, hundred percent. I had to get my appendix out and I couldn't, I, I'd get hand cramps. I'd get, I'd start breathing so badly about not just you know, the appendix thing, but everything. I'd, I used to, every Sunday, I just used to shut down. I wouldn't be up because I'd have to go to school on Monday. And so I'd freak out and I'd get these headaches and everything else. And at the time it's just like, that kid's just tired. And probably it was, I've been skateboarding or fishing all day and probably not drinking any water. But at the same time, looking back at it now, it's like, yeah. And I was always like, people would be like, yeah, Mike's pretty anxious. And that's the thing. You're just really anxious. That's it. If you're anxious about something, that's probably, actually, this is probably the easiest way to describe it. If you're super anxious about something, like you've got a massive thing on tomorrow or whatever, that's that, but ordering a cup of coffee. Or one for me would be like just doing my client calls the day before and making sure everyone was on time and where they had to be. Or posting a letter. Like it, You mean interaction with people? Inter- not just with people, just anything like baseline anything so have to go do something having to do something would come to this level of like where you then get you're almost overdoing everything else and throwing your energy everywhere so you don't have to do that so one you thing. don't have to do that one thing because it's so terrifying <laughs> because going and getting a new tire is the most terrifying experience of your life michael like no it's fine the tire guys are nice they're not judging you you know what i mean it's one of those things so so I've got so many questions. Hang on. So go for it. Shoot. So something like okay, I can understand going and getting a tire, or even having to get coffee because it's like you've got one sentence to say it right. Don't screw up. Don't screw up. And then yeah. of course you say something stupid. That I do that all the oh, time. Oh no, and but it's more like you're thinking about a joke, and then you're like, but will this joke? Oh yeah, and then you like say the ending for the which final. is just normal. That's yeah. what everyone has. But would you get anxiety then for something like going down to the garden to? you know, weed out your carrots. No, that's different. So it has to have people involved? It has to, there's a couple of things to it. It can, it can, you know, it's a blanket thing. It can be anything, right? But I tend to go and do the things that I shouldn't be doing, like mowing the lawns or weeding the garden or doing it when I know I've definitely got to pay my Telstra bill. And that's why I think that fishing ends up being one of those activities because I would know that I'd have a list of jobs as long as my arm to do. But, and it's not like, I don't see myself as lazy really. Like I, although when I'm being super anxious, I do. I'm like, Mike, you're being lazy. You're not doing that. But I'll do a 15 hour day guiding and be like, yes, sweet. I don't have to do anything else. Like, you know what I mean? Like I'm using intense overwork to avoid other very simple work. And it's, it's, not so much the people interactions or anything else. It can be sometimes, but oftentimes it's the, right, so if I post that letter, then that might lead to this, which might lead to this, which might lead to that, which might lead to that, which might lead to that. And you branch off into these 
mega trees of thought which are just what disabling. Is? Yeah. And they're like you just have so much going through and it's these infinite branches. And at some point you're just like, how do I shut this up? Oh, I'll just go, you know, go on a punching bag for a bit or mow the lawns or work on my motorcycle or go and cast my switch rod. And I know it. And then it gets even worse because after that, when you stop, you're like, oh, now it's all compounded a day. And that's where I think it's important for people to know who are using it as a coping mechanism that as a coping mechanism, it's probably not the best. That as a mindfulness exercise, as anything else, once you've been, A, get properly diagnosed, it makes a huge difference. There's a ton of support out there. I was really worried about doing it because I really didn't want to go and talk to like a shrink sort of thing, like a psychologist or anyone else. Like I, ironically, now I'm talking to you about a podcast. Um and I don't want to be that guy who's like, oh, I've got, you know, this. So it's, it's oh, man, such a, please come and book my garden day. <laughs> like, you know, that, <laughs> that's like the complete opposite. I'd like, if anything, I don't want to talk about it at all, but I feel that it's probably the smart thing to do. But. Well, you're offering a very different perspective because I honestly thought that we were going to talk about how fly fishing was good for it as, as a cure. I never would have thought about it as it being such a scapegoat. And such an out that it actually makes the problem in your real life worse. And it doesn't. And that's and I'm, that's the thing. I think if you the first step, and that's why, I mean, to be honest, my family and my wonderful girlfriend, everyone else, really awesome through all this. And to be honest, it's not much. Like, I'm, I'm pretty solid. Like, you know, I'm not dying. I'm currently fine. But it's one of those ones where Anne, my family, everyone else, they've... They've eventually gone to the point where it's like, Mike, just go sort this out. And Anne particularly, like she's fantastic. Like having a having a partner in all of that is off the charts. Or if you and if you don't have a partner in that stuff, find someone else who can help you. Or if you're completely by yourself, give me a call. My number's public. Like if you're a, if you're a fishing dude who has no one to talk to, I can talk, man. I will talk you under the table. And then the first thing is just go to a doctor. Um, and that's the only step I have to do. I just went to one. He was the nicest guy ever. He was like, look, you can book a psychologist if you want, but realistically, COVID, everything else is going to take three months. Um, and he was just really good to talk to, full stop. He was the nicest guy. And he still is. He's my GP. He's fantastic. But it's one of those ones where if you just do that, then it might be sweet. Just talking to someone helps. Or then going and talk to the psychologist helps for you or whatever, or a psychiatrist or whatever and that sort of thing. And then you get coping mechanisms and then you do that. Or... To be honest, and this was what I was really afraid of, is getting medicated. Oh, I was going to say I drugs. Know. Yeah. That was one of the ones where it was like, you know, I was talking about those what-if trees before. I'm like, right, because I love being me. And you get those highs and you get the lows and everything else. And it's a pretty standard cliche. No one wants to lose the highs, but you want to ditch the lows. And it's like, well, how do you do that? Because it's just going to level me out like a zombie. And funnily enough, I couldn't get in to see a psychologist or anything else, and I didn't really want to because just talking to this guy was fantastic. He's he's a legend. Um, and it got to the point where I was just like, and Anne was very supportive. She's like, look, why don't you try taking them? You have to take them for like a week or two, the ones I'm on or whatever. Um, and it feels bad, just stop. It'll be fine. I'm like, sweet. And we were going away, so I had to. And so I got the stuff. We went away for the first week. I was just like, oh, hey, what's going on? Like, I'd sort of not lobotomized, but just like You're weirdly level. Me. Okay. No, but the thing was, I found out 
I, it wasn't because I'd been, I thought at first that it was because I couldn't, that I was just like feeling no emotion whatsoever, that I'd just been like leveled out. But then I realized I just didn't have the constant background radiation of intense mega, you know, when your speakers, like imagine it as speakers, you're trying to listen to a song, you can't really hear it and your speakers are really crap. So you just keep turning them up and turning them up and turning them up. And all you've got is this intense white noise and the song there. You're like, yeah. Then imagine someone just cleaned up your speakers like that and it feels weird. And so you turn everything down and then you're like, wait a second, they can turn it back up again and the static's not there. Unless it's super intense and then it still comes back. But in a way that's manageable and then I've got everything else. And then it's like, also I see it coming and I'm like, heads up, this one's gonna be bad. And then we get through it and it's all good. So it's 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 a weird, weird experience. and. This is one of my major fears, actually, in doing all of this. I don't want to be... I don't even really care about the, like, typecast stuff. I don't want to be the mental health fly fishing guy because I'm a fly fishing guy. That's what I do. I don't do... Like, I'm not a mental health guy or a professional or anything else. Like, when I say you can call me if you want, I'll be sweet, and then I'll just be like, call your GP, call your GP, call your GP. Those are the mental health specialists. Those are the guys who know what's going on. Like, you don't go to a baker to ask him to fix your diesel engine. Like, it's not... Like, I'm a really proficient fly fishing guide, I like to think. Like, I, I like my job and, you know, and I like doing it with all my mates here and everything else. And I don't want to be that kind of, like... I won't label you the mental health Oh, man, that's, it's, like, my number one. And it's not my number one fear because of the stigma. Like, I feel the mental health stigma is gradually fading and that sort of thing. And that's also one of my... Like, I wanted to do that maybe just to help out a bit with some dudes who might be feeling... And I say dudes as well. When I say dudes, I mean men and women. How do you... Because while you're speaking right now, my brain is spinning wildly, mm. right? Because I'm, I'm, I'm like, I'm trying to put everyone in these categories in my head. I'm like, okay, she's got depression. I'm a mega... You would never know, but I'm actually a crazy introvert. I just... A lot of those things that you're saying click with, resonate with me. I'm thinking about boyfriends and I'm like, okay, well, he may have had, he definitely had anxiety, but he yeah. was just a lazy and it's bum. A, it's a slippery, you- it's a slippery slope because one of those things, um, so funny story, actually, we were watching, there's a TV show here in Australia called Love on the Spectrum, which is awesome. If you're Australian or if you can just get, um, Australian SBS on demand, I think it's Australian Netflix or whatever. Uh, it's called Love on the Spectrum. It's awesome. And it's about it's about various people with levels of autism and other disabilities and bits and bobs and that sort of thing. Just It's like a dating show. And at first, I was quite hesitant to watch it because I thought it would be kind of exploitive. I thought it was going to be like a bit voyeuristic and that sort of thing. But I watched it with Anne and it was just like the sweetest, best show ever because A, there was some total hilarious, like radical people on it. Um, and B, it was just like, this is rad. This is cool. And then midway through, we were watching it and they were talking a bit about autism and stuff like that. And, Anne was just like, you know what? I'm not mad at you for not doing the kitchen anymore because I just realized you pretty much are autistic. Like pretty much. <laughs> it's like, you know, it along those lines. And I was like, what are you talking about? She's like, you can't focus on more than one thing at once quite often. And you get, you've got this and you do that. And you do like all the stuff they're talking about. I'm like, whatever, you know, bullshit. And anyway, she went to have a shower, and so I did a quick autism spectrum test, <laughs> and I didn't, I didn't tell her the results because I wanted a level control. So I was like, here, babe, you do this. I found this. Do this test. Let's see what you are. Anyway, it's a score out of 50. And again, this is a stupid online test. This is not a real thing, I think. I don't know. It probably, well, it's a real thing, but it's not, it's not definitive. 
Anyway, she got like 11 or something out of 50, which is like, she's like, yeah, most people are out here. It's just normal traits or whatever. And you got like 28 or 30. <laughs> and it was like, and it was like Asperger's syndrome. And now I don't have medically diagnosed Asperger's syndrome, nor do I think I really need to go down and get a thing for it. Cause I think it was just a one-off little fun test thing, but I do have medically diagnosed anxiety. And I think it's a big difference to be like, oh yeah, this person has a, like anxiety or this person has ADHD or this person has that. Like they're medically so diagnosed, things, but they are all medically diagnosed. They're medically diagnosed. And that's the key is when you skip. And that's again, this danger that I'm sort of harking back to because, and it comes from me a lot of times I, I, and it is more guys that on the boat and they're opening up to me about stuff, which is awesome. And I never, of course, share any of those conversations. Um, and again, I feel I take out a massive amount of people. So there's a reasonable level of anonymity, but it's one of those things where I'm like, dude, I'm not like, I'll talk, I'll talk to anyone about anything on my boat any day of the week. That's, that's your job. And it's also not just my job. I love my clients. Like I've got the best clients in the world. I'm super lucky. I've one of the best fisheries in the world with all the best clients in the world. And then I get all my best clients from around the world and bring them here. So it's just fantastic. Like Australians and all my American mates and everyone else. Like, I mean, all people are fantastic, realistically. So I'll stop moving around on this chair. Um, but it's one of those ones where it's like, you can definitely go out, do that. But if you're doing that kind of stuff, it's probably best that you're not talking to your fly fishing guide about it. Go and talk to your doctor about it. If you talk to them they are not going to push pills down your throat to start off with. My guy was like, first few months, he's like, no, let's just take a look, hang out. And that's most of their approach. Most of their approach is let's fix this without medication. And then if we need it, let's try it. Oh my God, it works. Cool. You're sweet. And I think in the meantime, I've been using fly fishing as a crutch more than it's not a repairing tool. Oh no, it is. Sorry. Let me rephrase that. It was a crutch for me at the time. Now it's a restorative tool. Because now I can, now I've got all my time down. Now I've got everything down. When I go fishing now, I can be wholly mindful of what I'm doing and I can use it entirely restoratively and everything else. And I can also be like midway through, like, hmm, I should probably call so-and-so today. Yep. Cool. Noted. Done. I'm going to do that. Um, it's made me a better businessman. It's made me a better guide. Um, you know, and I think a better boyfriend, I hope, and everything else in between. So that's the main thing. I said, go to your doctor first, get some that sorted. And then obviously go fishing still and definitely come out with us because you know <laughs> we love guiding and you know um we won't talk to you about mental health all day unless you want to and then i totally will but also that's funnily enough i've got to say the one caveat with all of this is i don't want to see this as conflated with what i do professionally this yeah. is more i'm just as a as a fisherman i see this is a lot and as someone with anxiety who deals with it and then I know other people have a lot of problems and everything else. Don't push all your problems on fishing. Sort your problems out, then go fishing. It's a million times better. Look, it's the first time, and I, I will leave mental health off your title so that nice. we don't see you as the mental health episode. Yeah. And we'll finish up on fishing notes too so that you don't just because I can already tell you're going to sit back after this and you're going to think to yourself, what did I say? What did I say? And this I, one, not so much. Okay, the last good. one, 100%. I want, you to, I want you to know that there are people out there who have exactly this, who, yeah. who maybe didn't even know that it was anxiety or they've been yeah. too afraid to say it's anxiety, right? But this is great because this is the first time I've ever had that perspective. Yeah. 
And I'm guilty of that because I'm always the one who's like, go fishing to solve your problems. Go fishing to solve oh, your and problems. It's not, and that's not a bad thing either. Because no, but, but I've or, never to be honest, that as a, as a perspective. And to be honest, if you don't have a mental illness, which you need to get checked out and need to sort out, if you're just tired and stressed... Go fishing. Go fishing, 100%. <laughs> but if it's starting to impact areas of your life where you are noticing it and then you're using fishing as an escape entirely... And then coming back to the reality feels awful again. Probably time to go and sort that out. And it's pretty easy. It's like getting your oil changed. It's just a more expensive process. Okay. Basically. (laughs) All right. Well, no, I look, I really appreciate you sharing that. And it is definitely a perspective that I'm, I'm interested in hearing and I'm, and I'm proud to share. So thank you very much. Well, I thank you for putting up with me and also for, yeah. Re- redoing this entire thing <laughs> after I called you. I'm not going to lie, basically in tears. Uh, <laughs> big boys do cry. Uh, but yeah, it was one of those ones where I, I really, really felt that you do such a good job throughout all of your platforms at just helping people. And that's, that's why I thought it might help people talking about that here. And if you want help with fishing... I'm probably way better at that, so please ask me more questions about that because, like, I, I, I didn't, couldn't even sort myself out. I needed my wonderful girlfriend and my wonderful family and everyone else to help. So no one, no one exists in a bubble, and, you know, it's one of those things where just go grab someone and go have a chat and then go chat to your doctor. Those guys rule. That was the biggest thing for me. Yeah, that's great to hear too. Because a lot, I think a lot of us think about doctors, and look, I love doctors too. But mm. I always think to myself, oh, is he or she just trying to sell pills? Are they trying to take make money off of so and so? So it's nice to hear that you've actually had a really good experience. Exactly. And recommend people do it. Yeah. Um, you made your own raft. I did. I knocked up a little. So it's basically like a ladder chassis frame. Um, and I well. I, the raft we were on isn't my first raft. My first raft was the Ruby Slipper, um, named by John Heems, who he was the he was the head guard at Trout Hunter back in the day. And then so John Heems is like, oh, like you know, he's the king. Like him, Joe and Justin, they're my they're my heroes, you know. And Kelly, of course, but Kelly's Kelly's more like stream of Jesus on the side and the other three are like the Holy Trinity. I don't know. I'm my family was super Catholic. So it's all going to come together, but it's one of those ones where, um, John and all those guys, they're the ones. And my buddy miles taught me how to row. They're the ones who are like, yeah, do it. Just go and do it. Especially Justin too, as well. Justin's the nicest. He's just like, yeah, man, you're doing it. Get into it. Do it, man. Nice do it. Go for it. <laughs> oh, I can do this all day. Don't oh worry. No, that one was ridiculous. But, Someone who's listening right now who wants to do this, what do they do? I it was really hard to start off with because there's not much white water in Australia. And so I found a second hand raft that had been used in New Zealand. I bought it and then I just went on Google and just Googled how to build a raft frame and it's like the first thing. So when you say that you went to New Zealand, no, you went online. One. Ordered you, one. So you ordered the inflatable part, not the actual yeah, metal yeah. part. The bladder. So I ordered the, the bladder. And then I just looked up how to build a raft. And how much is that to order a bladder? Oh, that first one was like, not going to lie, it was pretty crap. It was like two grand. Um, okay. And it would be less expensive in North America. Right? Oh, yeah. Because everything here. So I, I run NRS boats here. So okay. um, Bladders. And frames now too. Oh, no. So I've got three. Well, we're kind of expanding out. So I've got three drift boats. So drift rafts rafts um one with the frame that i built myself where if you just google how to build a raft frame it's just a ladder chassis where you get aluminium i built it in my back shed with a hacksaw 
and some little joinery pieces in about an hour, and it was fine. An and hour? Yeah, it still is fine. It's like a big Meccano set. It's so actually pretty easy. Well, you just buy aluminum poles. Yeah, and just get, grab a hacksaw. Solder them together? Like, what's no, the, what's the... you can buy little joinery pieces for them. Oh. It's like a big Lego kit. Oh. Yeah, it's fun. And you then also, you can change it. So you can change it into two-man, or you can change it into a single. Or you can... It's just Allen keys, and then you can muck it all around. Oh, no, a bird just hit the window, right? No, that was um, Adelaide throwing a ball. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I thought a cockatoo just hit the window, but it's yeah. actually my four-year-old. Um, okay. But, but, yeah, so you basically do, yeah, you just knock it all together, and then I went for it, and the ruby slipper was the first one, and it was small and, and really fun. And then I upgraded to the blue suede shoe, um, which is the one you've been out on. And then yesterday, I believe, or the day before, we were out on the Gigi Hadid, which is um, it's just a it's just a fourteen foot NRS raft with full fishing frame package. Um, basically, every dollar I make just goes back into boats and various other equipment. So, and then I've also got a power boat now too. So we can cover the lakes, we can drift. And our legs still work just great, so we can uh, hike the high country and do everything too. But I love rowing. I love. I'm actually really excited. I'm getting a little pack raft this week, and I've got my own a couple of grade threes, which are formed due to some not floods, but um, usual clear water flows. Because you don't want to. If it's flooded, you forget it. But um, there's some really cool stuff. I'm going to go and bash, and then eventually maybe get a big boat in there and have some more fun. Just <laughs> build myself some Australian rapids and go for it. So yeah. When you fish in Montana, mm-hmm. is it the same thing where you're trying to cast almost on the bank and then rip your fly back? Yeah, if you're streamer fishing, yeah. Um, or you know, streamer fishing, you can fish them deep. You can you can you can drop them into holes. You can work them around. You can do. You just have fun with it when you're streamer fishing. But raft fishing in general, sorry, drift, drifting in general, you're fishing ahead of the boat up into the, like, say if you're throwing a hopper, you're throwing a streamer, you're pegging it at the bank, mending it, whatever. It's super easy and straightforward and nymphing even easier. So we take out, I take out people, probably about 40% of the people I take out have never touched a fly rod before. And within the day, they're catching fish, having fun, learning to cast and nymphing away and then chucking a dry on when we can and throwing streamers and doing whatever and just having fun, really. It's just a really fun way to live. Um, five rapid questions. Go. And then I'm going to let us go eat your beautiful lasagna that you yeah, made. Yeah, lasagna contadina. Okay, here we go. Um, stripper swing. Um, Brown trout. Brown trout strip. Yeah. Why? Because I like the eat, I like the I like them to come up and smash it, and you know, and I'm fishing off boats a lot, so I'm stripping it. Any other like you know, steelhead, sea run browns, salmon, um, swing all the way. I just want to, I want to, I want to target. But brownies, man, just chuck chuck it at the edge and strip. Why on the Tongariro are you more likely to catch a rainbow trout than a brown trout on a swung fly? Because there's about eight billion rainbow trout. Okay. Um, <laughs> there are a lot of there are a lot of brownies in there. Um, but it's just the time of year that you go. You can catch some awesome browns. The first first trout I caught on the Tongariro was a brown on a woolly bugger swung okay, when I was so eighteen. They will, they will take a swung. Hundred percent. Yeah. Okay. I mean, but talk to talk to anyone else about the Tongariro because I'm I've been going there, you know, ten years and I'm a complete doofus and I've got no idea what's going on. Talk to Andrew Burton about the Tongariro. Okay. He's fun. He's but cool. the same thing in this river. Same answer here in all, in the snowies. No, yeah. In fact, you're probably more likely to get a browning here because they're a bit more predatory in here. Um, and it depends what fly. You know, if you're swinging a nymph, you're going to get a rainbow. If you're swinging a... Like Morsi got his best um, best brown on the swing down here. Got a five and a half pounder. Landed in the water, bang, on. It was okay. awesome. Are the fish biting better when the water is rising or dropping? Rising, I would generally say. Yeah. Really? Here. Again, this is tail waters. 
Um, even up even up in the high country, you get a bit of rising water coming up here. They love it. Depends. Can't if it rises so much that it floods out, and then it's not as good. Dropping, you're probably dropping and warming up. You're probably getting better hatches. I mean, it's a really for up here. There's so much different stuff that sometimes rising, sometimes dropping on a tailwater. Generally, rising a little bit's good, and but I mean, dropping's still pretty good. Probably the rising bite is better for browns, and the dropping bite's better for rainbows here. Okay. If that helps. Yep. What's the biggest difference in trout behavior that you notice when the water gets murky? Um, they slide right up into anything. Anything. As soon as it gets high, you've got to be... Don't wade. Fish that far from the edge. Like a, a bee stick, as we say here, from the edge is where you want to be. Because they're in that. And they'll find anything. I've had... Yeah, pull trout out of chocolate milk and six inches from the edge, an inch from the edge. That's where they're at. And yeah, definitely, definitely fish those edges because that's where the food is. The nymphs move out, get flooded in, those little back eddies form, all the worms get chucked in there, get dirty and get on the edge. That's what I do. Okay, last rapid fire. What would you like to see Australians bring to this country that you really enjoyed in America? Um, Fly shops with kegs in them. That would be cool. (laughs) Seriously, and what one of my favorite things about being here in Tumut is the American outfitter style and a fly shop as a hub. And it's real. We're really lucky. We've got one here. Like Chris and Gemma do a fantastic job down at Tom's. Like I, I can get off the river, get what I need and just hang out with my mates and see everyone. Um, If they relax the liquor laws a bit and we could put half a drift boat in, like there are some, I just love going to fly shops in the States. It's just, you could just go there and just go to fly shops. It's like when you go to Italy, you go to every single church and museum. When you go to Montana, you just go to every single fly shop and they're all different and fantastic. And I, uh, you know, I, I, I just love working in, in big scangles over there. It was heaps of fun and we just all hang out and just a beautiful shop on the corner. So in West Yellowstone, there was right at the corner of the T junction. You see all the tourists go past and you'd be open until 10 o'clock at night, just pumping tunes and guys would be coming in, getting everything for the next day. And then, you wouldn't sleep, you go swing to Madison at mice at night and then go to a party and then go back to work and or then, you know, go row and do whatever. Like, yeah, just the fly shop culture there. The fly fishing culture there is on point. I love it, especially from Montana. I can't, I've done a little bit of fly fishing around other parts of the States, but that Montana fly fishing culture based around those outfitters. And I really love it. I love the other thing everyone over there could bring, which again, this is probably adding the last one to your rapid fire, is the sense of, like, I was in a town there with six fly shops. And you'd see all the other guys at the bars. Everyone buying each other beers, having chats, everything else. Like, there's not that level of territorialism that you tend to find in Australia. Because we haven't got as much fresh water, so I think guys get a bit cagey about it. But I think, to be honest, man, if everyone was just happy, go lucky and hanging out and probably has something to do with the fact that they have kegs in fly shops, um, is, yeah, that would be sick. I'd be all over that. The world would be a better place. Exactly. Well, I will wrap it up. Thank you very much for doing this in person. Dude, thanks for having me and thanks for, yeah, everything. You're the best. Likewise. Keep doing what you're doing. Let's do it. I got Lasagna ready to roll. And that concludes this episode of Anchored. Tune in next week when I sit down with Marina Gibson. Marina Gibson.